Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University. My latest books are Words on the Move and Talking Back, Talking Black. But my latest favorite project is doing these podcasts. And as my regular listeners may have noticed, my usual pattern is to alternate episodes where I fly solo with interview episodes. And this week's show is one of the latter. And specifically, I am so honored to have with me today Deborah Tannen. Deborah is a linguist at Georgetown, but I suspect most of you know her as the author of the four years long New York Times bestseller, You Just Don't Understand. Remember when that book was coming out of your faucets 24-7 back in the day? And she's followed up with many other books, such as The Argument Culture, which Deborah just gave me the occasion to take in, and I recommend. And now her new You're the Only One I Can Tell which, by the time you hear this, will have been officially released yesterday. This is a book about how women communicate within friendships, the particularities, the peculiarities, and yes, the pitfalls. And no, that's not ad copy. I put in that alliteration myself. But instead of listening to me alliterating, we should hear from Professor Tannen herself. Deborah, you have sincerely always been the public linguist that I wanted to be other than Mario Pay, And now I get to have you on my show. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, and I'm also a great fan of yours. Oh, please. Anyway, I wanted to ask you this at first, because I'm sure you're going to get asked it by many other people, and I always think about it. One point that you make, and this is not necessarily central to the book, but early on you say that it's been documented that under stress, women tend to bond while men are more likely to fight or flee. And I just got thinking... I assume that there are people who are going to say that there are issues of stereotyping in the very idea that women do one thing and men do another. I remember that being a lot of the academic response to the pioneering work on language and gender in the 70s. What is your take on that response, which I'm sure that you get all the time? Yes, you're absolutely right about that. That is the research of Shelley Taylor. And she pointed out this uh, kind of truism that people respond to stress by fight or flight is not as true of women as it is of men. She called the reaction she described and found in women to be tend and befriend. Mm -hmm. The tend part is take care of people, often children, and the befriend is turn to the people you're close to. And yes, there is always that immediate concern. Is this stereotyping? Well... Stereotyping, in my view, is 
drawing conclusions not based on observation, but based on assumptions that you come in with. If she has done actual research and found these patterns, if we don't describe them, people end up blaming themselves, blaming each other, and often it's the group that tends to be different that gets blamed. So Mm. often it's women that are seen as falling short because they're not reacting in the way is expected, and it's expected because that's how men do. Mm-hmm. But I do like to say right up front, there's a problem immediately in saying women do this, men do that. And it would be the same for any group. No study finds 100% versus 0%. As we know, academic studies, if you find 60% versus 40%, that is a very strong finding. Exactly. And I'm always very careful when I write to say many most, typically, tend to, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and those qualifiers always get forgotten and ignored, <laughs> and people walk away saying, men do this and women do that. So I, I'm glad you started with that so that we can have that caveat in mind with everything we say for the rest of this conversation. It's important, I think, for we educated people and everybody else to understand the dangers of stereotyping, but There does seem to be a tendency, talk about tendencies, for some people to be wary of there even being tendencies. The tendency is something to be wary of as well. And I think it can get to the point that you end up avoiding empiricism if you take that too far. Yeah. To say don't generalize is kind of a truism. You shouldn't generalize. (laughs) But then among academic studies, a study that is not generalizable is of no use. Of course. I think of so many people that respond to so many of my books by saying, it was such a relief to realize I'm not the only one. (laughs) And it may not just be gender. In fact, I wasn't a specialist in gender. I was a specialist in cross-cultural differences. One of the earliest studies I ever did was New York conversational style. Yeah. And very early on, I was comparing Greek and American style. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a man, a psychologist of Greek extraction, who used what would be more typical among Greeks, that is, you don't come out and say what you want, you kind of hint, and you hope the other person will pick up the hint, and then you get what you want, but you didn't demand it. Mm -hmm. He felt like a light had gone on in his entire life, Mm -hmm. because... Being in New York, he had always been seen as pathological. What was wrong with him that he was communicating in this indirect way? Right. It was more typical among New Yorkers to be more direct. Exactly. Is there a gender issue involved in that kind of indirectness? Would one say that women tend to be more indirect in that sense than men, at least maybe in American culture? That was one of the findings that I wrote about, and you just don't understand, that got among the most enthusiastic response, and it still does. And I'll just give you a quick, typical conversation. It was a real one, a woman, a man driving in a car, and she turns to him and says, "Um, are you thirsty, dear? Would you like to stop for a drink? And he isn't, so he says no. And then later he discovers that she had actually wanted to (laughs) and was disappointed, and he's frustrated. You know, why should I be a mind reader? And my comment was, she probably did not expect a yes-no answer. She probably expected something like, I don't know, how do you feel about it? And then she could say, I don't know, how do you feel about it? 
And at this point, when I'm speaking to an audience, I see the elbows going. (laughs) So many couples in the audience recognize it. Exactly. And they're elbowing each other and they're laughing. So this book that I've just written is about friendship, and the same kinds of things can come up between friends. Can I give you another example? Definitely. Because this is one that happened to me, and it is so funny (laughs) that I didn't pick it up myself. So this is a good friend of mine, and um, my husband and I don't cook very much. She tended to cook quite a bit, so she would often invite us over and make dinner. And one time we had a house guest who offered to make dinner, and we thought, great, opportunity. We'll invite this friend to whom we owe a dinner. Well, she gets to my house, and she's acting like a co-host. She's getting up to retrieve things. She's offering food. She's... (laughs) (laughs) trying to clean up, and I keep saying, I don't want her to. I keep saying, please sit down. I really don't want you to. And at one point, it was uh, almost uh, embarrassing. She got into the kitchen. I grabbed her arm, and I yanked her back. (laughs) Now, normally, I would have just been annoyed, forgotten about it, not said anything. But because I was writing this book, I really (laughs) wanted to know her perspective. (laughs) Well, she immediately described what had just happened with her mother. She'd been visiting her mother. Mother makes dinner. She helps serve the food. Her mother says, please don't. She starts clearing the table. Her mother says, stop it. She's washing the dishes. Her mother says, you shouldn't do that. I told you not to do that. You never listen to me. And then when the whole job is done, her mother says, thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you don't listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) And this light went on for both of us. Mm-hmm. It had never occurred to her that when I said I didn't want her to help, I meant it. That you actually meant it. And it had never occurred to me that she thought I didn't mean it. See, this, folks, by the way, is linguistics. Language is so much more than making statements, asking questions, and giving commands. We're getting into that realm of linguistics that has to do with that which is not explicitly said, but is part of being a human being. So on this show, I've talked about pragmatic particles and the hey and the hey. This is more in that realm. To not understand these things can make it difficult to get along in this world, and there's system to it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Deborah, there's something else um, about your work that has always fascinated me because it made a light bulb go off in my head. And that's the issue of what you call high involvement conversational style. And by that, you mean that there's a kind of person who in conversation considers it normal to be constantly overlapping with the other person to the point that if that overlapping isn't happening, then that's a sign of disengagement. I had never thought about that as a thing until I knew your work and it made sense to me of various people who I already knew who talk that way. To this day, I avoid talk shows because I don't like interrupting people, but I know that that's just my particular quirk, that there are other people who wouldn't even consider interrupting to be interrupting. And I just want to play a quick clip of a song where people are overlapping 
in their conversation. Not in exactly the way that you're talking about, but it's a song that when I first heard it, I saw this Stephen Sondheim song performed in the London production of Follies in 1988. I remember the woman was Diana Rigg. I remember thinking that's a good song partly because of the way they overlap. So here is a little amuse-bouche or amuse-ore from Mr. Sondheim, one of his lesser-known songs. This is A Country House. This is Carol Burnett and George Hearn. Country house would be fine. Would you like one? Sure, that would make you happy. Swell. Whatever makes you happy. Yes, well. Why not? We'll get a country house. What kind? Kind. Whatever kind you have in mind. You choose. Look, it's your idea. Country house. Oh, forget it. And a good one. If that's what makes you happy. Happy. Comparatively happy. All right, right where? where? I don't care. That's not fair. Well, then somewhere, somewhere in the, the woods. By the sea, then. Don't agree, just to agree. Look, it's all the same to me. Yes, I know. So that sounds like people, but it goes further than that. There's gender and there's culture on this. I seem to recall that the idea was that New York Jewish people typically have this high involvement style. Who doesn't? Is there a culture that is the opposite to this? Yes. I contrasted what I called high involvement style with a style that I called high considerateness. Mm -hmm. And it was based on a study that I did. It was a conversation among six people. I was one, three of us New York Jewish, two from California, not Jewish, and one was British, Mm -hmm. half Jewish. So the high involvement style speakers had a whole range of styles that had a very positive effect when we used it among ourselves, but a negative effect, an unexpected, unintended effect when used with the Californians. So one was expecting slightly shorter pauses between turns so that we would get the sense that they had nothing to say when they were simply waiting (laughs) for the floor. Overlapping was another, so uh, high involvement style often means talking along to show enthusiasm, but you don't expect the other person to stop (laughs) when they stop. They really created the interruption. You didn't. (laughs) It was a misunderstanding of intention. And it goes along with many other things, telling more personal stories, sometimes dramatizing the point of the story rather than spelling it out. Our voices would have more extreme fluctuations of intonation and often very long pauses, but within a turn. It would be a dramatic pause within a turn, maybe before you make a dramatic point, but not as a turn exchange pause. By the way, also, asking questions to show interest, to give the other person the floor so that you're kind of being generous, but when they don't answer, you ask another. They don't answer, you ask another. You end up asking machine gun questions. And when you have different styles, you end up doing more of the thing that you think makes sense, (laughs) and you end up frustrating the other person, driving them into more extreme forms of the opposing behavior. So these rapid-fire questions don't get the other person speaking, which was the intention, but makes them clam up because (laughs) they feel overwhelmed by this barrage of questions. Deborah, you must share with our listeners the term where behavior by one person makes the other person's opposite behavior more extreme. What's that called? Yes, one of my favorite terms complementary schismogenesis. Ouch, yes. So a schism (laughs) is a split, and genesis is creation. (laughs) So it's the creation of a split in a complementary way. 
So all of these patterns that I just described where you're talking along to show enthusiasm, asking a lot of questions, standing closer, talking more loudly, you're showing you're a good person by emphasizing your involvement in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the logic of the opposing style? Leave longer pauses, speak more slowly, mm-hmm. speak in a lower volume. Don't ask questions. Allow the other person to volunteer if they want to tell you. You're actually not even that eager to get the floor, perhaps. All of those things would be high considerateness. And I think that's the value that people who tend toward that style will feel. They're being considerate. They're not imposing. This goes back to the work of Robin Lakoff. So much of what I say is dependent on that pioneering work of Robin Lakoff, who was my professor at Berkeley and was your colleague at Berkeley. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was one of the reasons that I went into linguistics in the first place. And she pointed out that every person, every speaker, in every conversation has to follow three rules. Maintain camaraderie, be friendly, don't impose, Mm -hmm. give options. And she points out we all do observe them all, but we observe them in different Different ways, ways, exactly. Different contexts. Mm -hmm. And so a high involvement style puts more emphasis on the first rule, maintain camaraderie, be friendly. A high considerateness style puts more emphasis on the other two, and I do tend to collapse the other two. Don't impose, give options. And you can see immediately what you're going to run into if you have two friends that have these different styles. And I I interviewed over 80 women for my book about friends, and I heard many stories like this. I ask her questions, she doesn't ask me. Well, maybe she's one of these people who thinks it's imposing to ask. You should let the other person volunteer. And that actually was an explanation. A woman who had told her friend that her mother was in the hospital and expected the friend to follow up. How's your mother doing? She was hurt that she didn't. And when she asked her, she said, gee, and my mother always taught me, you don't ask questions like that. If the person Hmm. wants to tell you, they'll tell you. Right, right. You know, it's interesting, Deborah, about light bulbs and conversation style, because I was equipped to understand myself and my social world on the basis of that observation that I actually learned from you. I am an urban Northeasterner by birth. I grew up in Philadelphia, then spent some time in New York. Then I spent 14 years in California, and I've been back in New York now for 15 years. And I remember thinking when I moved back to New York in 02 that I found it easier to talk to a lot of people in New York, and I realized why it was. In 14 years, you can do a lot of (laughs) great things and a lot of crummy things. There were people in California who didn't like me because I did something bad. There were other people in California, though, who often found me unpleasant because they found me pushy in conversation when I never thought of myself that way. But I realized what it is, is that mellow California style that you're talking about, which I never quite fit into, whereas on the streets of New York or even, you know, in the the salons of the Upper West Side, it fits right in. And I wouldn't call myself an especially high involvement talker, but I was definitely out of place for 14 years at those lovely parties in the Bay Area. 
because of that. But folks, you know, I know that a lot of you are waiting for a particular clip when we talk about these different conversation styles and the issue of pace. And so, of course, we're going to play Bob and Ray. And of course, the skit is going to be an excerpt from The Slow Talker, which is still funny over 50 years later. For those of you who don't know who Bob and Ray are, listen to this. No, but would you sit there now and and tell us your name, please? Harlow P. Whitcomb. And where are you from? From Glens Falls. New York. New York. And what do you do? I am the president and recording secretary secretary of uh, the S T O A what does that stand the for slow talkers of Believe in speaking slowly in forming your words, thoughts, our ideas and opinions clearly before speaking. We speak. We are here. In New York City. In the city of New York. Attending a convention. Our annual convention. Membership convention. I love that Bob and Ray clip because it shows you the frustration of the fast talker <laughs> in response to the slow talker. And so often we think more about how high considerateness speakers are put off by the styles of high involvement speakers they feel imposed on. It's frustrating to both, and that's such an important point to make. And I just want to quote this woman who, she was a high involvement speaker, and I was explaining that high considerateness speakers are following the rule, don't impose, and she said, but the not imposing is so offensive. <laughs> exactly. Deborah, I wanted to ask you about something else. Men and agonism. Men and agonism. The idea that men compete when they converse, which is something that I actually noticed when I was about 10, although I didn't have the vocabulary for it. But that has been shown to be statistically true, that men are more likely to play one upmanship in conversation. So agonism is a term I've borrowed from Walter Ong. He uses it to refer to ritual opposition. Mm -hmm. So agon is war. Agonism is using a warlike stance to accomplish things that are not literally fighting. So obvious one would be teasing. 
it is the case that boys and men are more likely to use teasing, to use playful insults, that's agonistic, as a way of showing affection. And, yeah, it can be a kind of competition, kind of one-upping in a good-humored sort of way. When I give lectures, I have two little clips that I often show, two little girls playing and talking and four little boys playing and talking. And the boys are trying to top each other. So one little boy says, uh, mine's up to there, and the next says, mine's up to the sky. Mm -hmm. The third one says, mine's up to heaven. And the fourth one, mine's all the way up to God. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very cute, and you can see that they're good-natured, they're enjoying it, but it is one of And less likely of girls, yeah, definitely. Nothing like that among girls. So the two little girls are drawing, and one says, do you know my babysitter called Amber? has already contacts, and the second one says, my mom has already contacts, and my dad does too. (laughs) And the first one is so pleased, and she says the same. I have lots of examples where girls and women spend a lot of effort showing that they're the same, Hmm. where boys and men are showing that they can tap each other, and it isn't all good. I mean, I have heard also complaints from women Mm -hmm. that the requirement to always be the same can be problematic. One woman said, my my women friends don't let you be different. Another woman said, I find friendships with women are very difficult to navigate because as soon as you say you're different or you have a different opinion, they think you're putting them down. They hear it as a criticism. I definitely know what you mean. I actually found that that was part of the problem between me and some people in California, that there was a general assumption, the general cultural assumption, so to speak, was that people were to seek to agree with one another. Whereas in New York City, I find that there's more room for jolly disagreement. Yeah, you might say friendly contentiousness. Exactly. And I've come across descriptions of New York style that way, by the way, and it can be women and men from New York. And again, why it's so important to realize not everything is gender. We have influences on our style from region, from ethnicity, from class, from the kind of work that you do, and of course, individual personality. So the parameters of style are always flexible, and even high considerateness and high involvement styles, they're not monolithic. Mm -hmm. You can be relatively more of one, relatively more of the other, have some features of one, some features of the other, and we all have our own unique styles. Exactly. Folks, it's about a lot more than nouns and verbs. And I want to touch on one more thing, Deborah, which is the piece that you now have in The Atlantic, which addresses something else that you discuss in this book, which is that there are certain pitfalls in social media communication between friends that might happen between the young and the old. And that's something that I'm noticing a lot of interest out there in these days. What is it that a person who's older, as we say these days, older might watch out for when, say, texting or Facebooking or whatevering with those who are younger? One would think that things would be pretty straightforward because everybody can rub a noun and a verb together, but apparently it's not that simple. Yes. Older people that will end a uh, sentence with a period, just because when you write, end with a period. Younger people will hear as you're angry. Mm-hmm. So if a mother texted her daughter, call me, period, now, period, the daughter thinks, uh-oh, I'm really in hot water. And it turned out, no, they just had a normal conversation. That was just how she ended her sentences. One that really surprises older people, the use of dot, 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 three dots. Mm-hmm. 
we sometimes use it to mean and on and on more and more. And my students tell me that they hear it as undercutting the thing you just said before. So if a father, as he did, asks his daughter what she did for her birthday and she tells him the restaurant she went to and he says, wow, dot, 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 what she hears is, couldn't you have done better than that? Right, right. Or if he signs, I love you, dot, 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 it sounds like, I don't really love you. (laughs) Exactly. Whereas I'll bet for both you and me, that's not what it would mean at all. If anything, it puts a pleasant little haze around it. But definitely it doesn't undercut it the way many younger people would think. I'm noticing also with some people who are, say, 30 and below, that email in general is for them something that's kind of cramped and they often won't answer for three or four days. Whereas if I'm in a situation where I am also texting with them because maybe they were my student and then there are reasons that we have kept in touch or, you know, done some sort of performance in the years afterward such that I text with them, they immediately answer texts and they are much more immediate and vivid and themselves in texting. It seems that Email has become elderly, and texting is what the lively and interesting person does. Yes, it seems to be um, a sense of what's formal and what's informal. So for me and people my age, we think of email as informal, Mm -hmm. and young people tend to think of it as formal. Almost the way we would feel if we got a letter. (laughs) We don't feel we have to sit down and, and type an answer to a letter right away. Yeah. The distinction started even earlier with attitudes toward texting versus phone calls. Yeah. So many parents are frustrated their kids wouldn't answer a phone call and won't listen to a voicemail because it takes so much time. You know, you got to <laughs> put your voicemail, put in your passwords, sit and listen. Just call the person back and find out what they're calling you about. And then, well, you don't have time to call right now, so you wait till you have time. Whereas text is right there, yeah. quick answer. The objection many older people have, and some younger people do too, but mostly the older you are, the more likely you are to feel this way, that it is terribly rude to answer a text when you are physically present with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And the feeling of many younger people is... That's perfectly normal. short time, it's not really an interruption. I first noticed that happening during a Seder. I was watching a couple of teenagers just texting during the Seder. This was several years ago. And I asked them, I said, is is this, and I didn't criticize them, but I said, is this normal? Is this now what you and your friends do? And they said, yeah, this is what we do all day long. And I realized, hmm, we are in a new era. It it fascinated me. Yes. I hear so much from older people. Young people don't even know what it means to be a friend anymore because they never see each other face to face. It's always on the screen. Right. I, I don't share that concern. We all know the difference between face-to-face and on a screen. I actually think of it as an extension of how was your day conversations at the end of the day. If you're close to somebody, you tell them you know, where you went, what you did, and this can be more common among women than men. But now you don't have to wait till the end of the day. Exactly. You share what's going on with your friends at the time it happens. It's as if they were there. You know, you elbow somebody and say, hey, look at that. So now you take a picture and send it to them. Hey, look at that. Yep. We are in a village at this point. And it's interesting. I've come to realize the 90s were a bizarre, brief little period where email could be king. You learned how to email in the late 80s, and then there was a time when, you know, the typical 17 or 18-year-old was happy to email you for paragraphs. Then texting comes in in the early aughts and really takes care of that, and I don't see why it would ever come back. And so we're in a new era 
And email is just going to be something that's increasingly going to have the air of Jane Austen about it for people who are marching ahead in time. But Deborah, I want to thank you so much for sharing this book with us. I can tell you quite honestly that the other day I had your book in my office when I was reading it. And one of my students came in and while I was doing something else, she started paging through it. She quite spontaneously was entranced and was hoping that she could borrow the book when I was through with it. That is how she, with her millennial texting self, felt about this book. And so I get the feeling people are going to like it quite a bit. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. See, I just overlapped. That's right. Just to show how enthusiastic I am about our conversation. (laughs) That is the way people should communicate. To lead us out, I want to play a clip from a TV show most of us have probably seen at least some of, Seinfeld, to demonstrate men and the agonism. Remember the episode where George Costanza learns that bastard is a term of affection? Here is a clip from that wonderful episode that actually got me thinking about this way back then. Hello? Uh, is that you, George? <laughs> yeah, it's me. Is this Clayton? Well, listen, you son of a bitch. You know where we are? 30,000 feet above your head, you bastard. <laughs> what are they doing letting you bastards on an airplane? Don't they know that's against FAA regulations? Hush up now. I can't hear him. Listen, I want you guys to send along those agreements the minute you land. Our boys can't wait to kick your butts. When's that bastard coming to Houston? Hey, Zeke wants to know when you Yankee bastards are coming to Houston. You tell that son of a bitch no Yankee is ever coming to Houston. Not as long as you bastards are running things. Hey, now, now speak up, George. I can't hear you. You tell that son of a bitch no Yankee is ever coming to Houston. Not as long as you bastards are running things. George, get a hold of yourself. What's the, what's the matter with you? You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Mike Volo. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>